Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things, and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm Winsler Powers. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing, buddy? I am doing confused. Uh, this was by far one of our most fun and most complicated episodes because we had Cassidy Colhanek on to talk about the history of photography and the concept of plagiarism. And Cassie knows her stuff so well. <laughs> She's so good. She's so good. Guys, you're about to get, this is going to be a long one. I already know it. So why don't we just hop right in and, and go from there? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Cassidy Colhanek, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this, this adventure. Absolutely. This is an interesting story because I'm realizing that my chair is right against my background and rubbing, so we're going to get occasional squeaks. I could just move, but I'm not going to do that. Or not move. That would also prevent It's <laughs> a really good point. Or just let the occasional squeaks happen. Yeah, I don't know how much my mic is picking up here, but it's going to be an interesting one. This podcast is hosted by Winsler, Andrew, and a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, so you, you wrote me with a topic idea, so I asked you to come on, and your response was the perfect one for this show, which was, how heady can this get? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, no, let's let's go absolutely all in. So much so that when you gave me the idea, I went in the completely wrong direction, and then you sent me some essays on this, and I was like, oh my god, this is a really interesting topic that I was not at all aware of. This was so fun to start reading about, and I don't know how I never found out that this was a thing. This was an interpretation of art. I'm guys, I'm giving this as much of a lead as we can. We're going to start talking about photography in a minute. But then Cassidy has a very interesting where it went wrong. Also, you've got multiple things going on right now, right? I mean, you're, you're writing for Laugh Line on Amazon Prime. Hell yeah. Which is very <laughs> cool. You've got The Laugh Yard, which is one of the better shows we have in Chicago, the one that you're running in your backyard, which I very much appreciate that we can do outdoor shows here because I'm no longer going inside places. <laughs> yeah, we're staying safe and we're having a good time there. And it's kicking ass. It's like great lineups every time. It's been super fun. It was really a great show. I know you've got Niles Absent coming on soon, right? When yeah, he's, he's coming this in week. for his Clowncast. He was a great guest that, that we had here. And you're on his Clowncast tour episode, right? Yeah, on Thursday. That's going to be so 
so much fun. Yeah, I'm super excited. It's now the past, guys, but yeah. the, CEO, the show went fantastic. <laughs> killed it, and Niles is a joy. So I've, I've briefly forgotten how time works or us recording this in general, the thing we do every week happens. But all right, so let, let's get into this. Why did you pick with this topic to start with? Okay, so I came to you with the topic of plagiarism, and you were like, oh, yeah, plagiarism, bad, like all these things that were ruined by plagiarism. And I, I said, no, yeah. I mean, <laughs> plagiarism and how plagiarism went wrong and how the whole idea of plagiarism has kind of been turned on its head and become this really kind of impossible to navigate minefield of ideas and parallel thought and remixes and things like that. And so this is something that's always really fascinated me as my backgrounds in visual arts and both in the visual arts and the comedy worlds, plagiarism are such like it's it's a huge no no in either of those worlds. Stealing jokes is like the death penalty if you get caught stealing jokes, right? And just get called like a hack in either world if you get caught taking something. But at the same time, like we're constantly taking things and we're constantly reshaping ideas that we've already been shown by other people. And we point such a hard finger and have such harsh punishments for this thing that is actually like very fickle and hard to prove and can happen completely on accident. So it's just something that's really exciting to me to think about because a lot of people just paint it as this like black or white good or bad issue but actually it's it's very nuanced it absolutely is and it's something that i think we deal with very much obviously in the comedy world i'm i'm a one-liner comic so it's one of those it's very easy to see a lot more overlap because there's not as much nuance of oh this is a story of their life and here's a similar aspect obviously on twitter i think the the most recent one for me was i told a joke about vampires and crosses and i got a an onslaught of responses saying rick and morty did this and I, I watched the Rick and Morty episode and thought, this is a completely different joke. None of this is the same except for the fact that it's a vampire cross. And I, I can see how there's a connection, but like it's one of those things where you don't get that response from writers who are like, oh, yeah, this is clearly a different thing. But when you have a large audience here, that line of what is plagiarism, what's an original thought, what was inspired by something else is much harder to navigate. I feel like also we have a lot of people who try to reverse engineer plagiarism. If that makes any sense. Yes. Like people will see a joke and like, they'll be like, oh, I've heard this topic done before. And then they'll like go through and be like, oh, okay. Yeah. This topic was done here. So you had to have stolen it. It's like, that's not really how this works. Oh, I've had some too, where they said it like, I had never heard of this show they had mentioned where they said they'd, they'd done this here. And then again, you go back and find it. And it was like, no, this is something that reminded you of this. Yeah. I, I've also had times too, by the way, where I wrote a joke, thought it was completely original. Turns out it wasn't. You, you delete the joke, you apologize, whatever. It, it happens accidentally very often. And if it is an accident, most people are very cool about it. It's just like, oh, had no idea what you did this first. That's all yours. I'm going to step back. You know that thing where it's just like if you get like a million monkeys in a room, yeah. infinite <laughs> typewriters, they'll eventually type the works of Shakespeare. Well, that's Twitter. Right. <laughs> Everyone's throwing the like top of dome thoughts at the wall and people being like, you idiot, you wrote Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> okay, fuck, I'm sorry. It's also a thing too where you are scrolling through thousands of jokes and sometimes stuff seeps in and you don't realize it. Where it's like, oh wait, I had seen this before. I thought I wrote this independently. Turns out absolutely not. But I thought your background in the visual arts was interesting here because I had kind of viewed it as something that was harder to plagiarize when you picture it as a photograph, uh, something still. And I've 
obviously with the pieces you sent me, it's a very different interpretation of, of how you're looking at this and what creation is and what is originality. But it was really fun to get into because of that, because there are so many different ways to look at plagiarism as a concept. I'm expecting a lot of here's the stuff that you massively misunderstood as the response. No, 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 no. I, I'm just like, I'm excited to hear your interpretation of everything because I did approach like the idea of plagiarism from this very specific, you know, point of view that I have because I have a ton of art history, education and art background and education and things like that. But in visual arts, it's kind of like, I don't know, it feels in a lot of ways like it depends on how well you can spin your argument for having plagiarized something. And (laughs) (laughs) and I think that it like that has a lot of precedent in art history. And I feel like there isn't really... I, correct me if I'm missing something, but there's not really an analog for that in comedy writing that I can think of. In terms of a counter to it, no. It's weird because there are also people that have gotten very successful just by plagiarizing. And most of them just own it. When they're confronted with saying, you stole my joke, they're like, yeah, you write better material than I did. I'm a terrible person. I'm okay with that. <laughs> and and there have been people that have gotten very successful using that. Method. I know Pat Noswalt wrote about that, where he said, the, the guy just said to him, you write so much more than I do, and I'm more successful, so you don't need it. (laughs) So I'm just going to take your good stuff. And of course, eventually he reached a plateau where he had to write on his own and failed because he he couldn't do that, which is obviously the satisfying end you want to that story, but doesn't often happen. It's often is if you're a certain name, you you get away with it. For others, it's very much the accusation is, you know, the the death of a career. There are also plenty that have said, oh, I I didn't know. I, I was new at this and didn't realize how much this was stepping on someone else's toes. But you're right. There's not much of an argument around it. It's, it's either you, you make it right or you don't. There's not a defense of it. Right. And I think that something else that I've thought about with comedy in particular on this topic is that in these other mediums, in art and in music, they're like in in visual art, we're talking about like a photograph and taking a photograph of something and like plagiarizing that image, just reproducing that image over and over and over again, right? Well, without reproducing the literal like photograph or something, there are pieces of art in the past where like Marcel Duchamp just took a photo of the Mona Lisa at one point and that was like a work of art that Marcel Duchamp is like fairly well known for having made. I mean, he's famous for other works of art but that's right. like one of his more <laughs> well known works is the uh, Mona Lisa that he did and in music there are cover songs, right? Like it, it's not plagiarism to cover a song and there's not something like that really for us and I have like played with this idea before I at one point did a cover set of Larry the Cable Guy jokes like early really? on in my stand-up career that's actually very funny <laughs> it was a lot of fun but it was hard to get people in on the joke so i don't i don't know because there is like this weird sacredness between the two or like that's so permanent to comedy and like such a fixture of comedy but not quite treated with the same preciousness in other ways yeah and i think it's interesting because there, there are bits that are specifically playing off it god who was it that, that did the joke where they did jerry seinfeld but his entire set was about how he was dating a 14-year-old or 17-year-old. That's that uh, 17, you're right. Like it's still creepy, but a different kind of creepy. So, you know, like the what's the deal with meeting your girlfriend's parents and then you have to pick her up after school. And and it was like he had a good Seinfeld impression that he's, he's working off of here. And so much of the cadence and delivery and obviously 
concept of the joke itself is Seinfeld, but Jerry Seinfeld is the punchline here for something extraordinarily creepy that he did. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of thing is like the impact from it happens because he's like plagiarizing these stylings of Jerry Seinfeld. Like it's one thing to just talk about Jerry Seinfeld, but to be, you know, encapsulating Jerry Seinfeld as a performer and talk about these things is like you have to have plagiarism to make that happen, right? Right. And you're right when you when you introduced the the idea to me my first thought was copyright law in Disney where it, it was obviously there there's been a lot that that's happened there and and how much Disney has fucked over writers by not allowing the expansion of work or the recreation of work or access to work but there's also I understand I mean not Disney's Disney was you know financially motivated but but you want to hold on to your own work and and your own creation I think we've also probably all had things where we have a joke go viral and I people have made so much money off of my jokes yes <laughs> the meme accounts that that are paid you know, oh, ten thousand yeah. dollars for an ad and and my friends send it to me like this is cool you ended up on fuck Jerry and I'm like no fuck Jerry they're stealing my work they made so much money taking a screenshot of a joke that I wrote and it's it's infuriating that this continues to happen and it, it's one of those things too where it's like okay but and then you had some that claim exposure and some some have helped me out so the, you know the, there's one that I, I gave permission to because he said you know look, look I'm gonna help boost your podcast it's like great love love the podcast I'm <laughs> I, I need help there where we made a deal in this place but most of the time it is just complete stealing of the work and one of the strangest things I encountered from that was defense of it was, was that it, I expected everyone to be like oh yeah this is wrong but you get as soon as the meme accounts post it people respond and say who who cares it's just a joke it's like no it's, to you it's just a joke this is my career this is people are getting jobs off of their jokes being known as their jokes and once the identity is removed from that it's part of a meme account it now belongs to that meme account in terms of identification even if they keep my name attached to it this is directly affecting my work and even on just a much more basic level I don't think it's unreasonable to want credit for something you've made and there there tends to be this reaction of oh it's just the internet and it's 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 just Twitter is a phrase you hear so often those people don't get it those right. people do not understand what Twitter is <laughs> one of my favorite like moments of for myself was a comedian that I like and he did not steal a joke from me he just did something about like Harry Potter being set in the 90s which is just a fact about Harry Potter but he made some joke about that and then somebody was just like uh excuse me but this one did it better and they put a thing of my 90s <laughs> Harry Potter bulls joke but they cropped my name and everything out oh, of it and posted it there and then I believe it was Abby Govindan tagged me underneath that and I was just <laughs> like how perfect is it that in somebody's like you stole this joke moment they were like but also take out credit I'm gonna yeah. steal right. this joke <laughs> Daniel Kibblesmith and I both have a joke about Chuck E. Cheese and they've been cropped together as one joke and posted all over Reddit and I keep seeing it pop up both of our jokes together as if it's one tweet by nobody oh my god <laughs> when first of all it's just it's just overwritten they're both fine on, on their own it's Andrew Kibblesmith right <laughs> okay so I hear that you don't like when people defend plagiarism so is it a good thing or a bad thing that I am on your show right now to defend plagiarism <laughs> I think the point of it is that there is context to it and and which is what the whole point of the, the show is is that there is something that we love I think in our case it's the writing and where it went wrong is the abuse of the writing but the one that you gave us was actually the photography aspect which was the one that we're going to get to the history in, in a minute but no I, I think the fact that this is defensible in many aspects when it's used correctly the problem is like anything else it's abused yeah and I, I do want to say that like I am going to say some things today on this podcast that like logically I agree with but emotionally 
I hate. Sure. <laughs> I hate some of the things that I'm going to say. I hate the way they make me feel. I know you're going to hate the way they make you feel. And they piss me off to no end. But I'm going to say them regardless. Okay, this is going to be this is going to be a fun, infuriating episode. I'm yeah. a big fan of this. I love this approach. <laughs> All right. Let, let's get into some history here, too, because when you gave us photography, this is what I've been wanting to cover because we touched on this in the uh, episode with movie history with James Urbaniak. And then I, I think we covered it, too, when we had Moses Storm on, right? A little bit of, of the start of the camera, but how it actually came about, we haven't gotten a chance to get into yet. Photography was a big thing when I was younger. I used to trade concert photos for access to concerts, which it turns out you can do <laughs> if, if you're good at it. Andrew, every now and then you drop fun facts about yourself on here that I am enamored by. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was cool. I was like, guys, you know, I just you send up some other photos. It's like, by the way, here's what I can do. I don't want to pay for your ticket. I'm like, cool, give us the photos. We'll let you in. <laughs> when I feel like you guys need to have a little, uh, like a little song now, a little ditty, like Andrew Facts. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times an episode. This has been an Andrew Facts. <laughs> Andrew Facts. Perfect. I would love it if somebody rips off that ditty and we use that uh, <laughs> as the music from now on. <laughs> All right. So we're obviously we're talking about cameras. So I found a way to go back about twenty five hundred years. Of course. you. Of would. course. <laughs> so we're going to start with the origin of the camera and the camera obscura. This was a darkened room with a small hole functioning as a lens on one side through which an image is projected onto a wall or table opposite the hole. This is very similar to what you use to view an eclipse. If you've built one of these boxes in elementary school, it's also pretty similar to how your human eye works. But this was later used to apply to condensed versions boxes or tents built specifically to function as a camera obscura. And this would reproduce the image well, but reversed and upside down. Also to create a sharper image, the pinhole had to be made smaller, which would mean it would be dimmer. So you could also project this onto a translucent screen so you could view it from the back, meaning it no longer be reversed, but still upside down. Or using mirrors, you could project it right side up, but still reversed. So artists would then be able to trace the image, creating far more accurate depictions, uh, especially in reference to scale. In the 18th century, overhead versions and tents were built using mirrors inside a kind of a periscope on the top of the tent, allowing images to be projected downwards onto a table so artists could work on a horizontal surface, which is more the period people associate it with, or slightly earlier in the 17th century, but the origins go back far earlier. There are even theories that camera obscura effects influence Paleolithic cave paintings through tiny holes in tents or screens of animal hides, not a deliberate creation of them, but distortions on the shapes of animals in many Paleolithic cave artwork might be inspired by distortions seen when the surface on which then an image was projected was not straight or in the right angle. It's just a theory I'm skeptical of which, but it actually does exist as a possibility. You're like, fuck you, that's too far back. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> Andrew, who loves nothing more than to go to the very beginning, actually read a caveman theory about cameras and just went <laughs> not buying it. And that's how you know it's an indictment of that theory. Andrew would love nothing more than to be like, the camera was invented by the cavemen, did you know? There is so much like pride in in France about the history of photography oh and yes. like how French artists impacted photography. Like early photography was like so, everything is so big to the French there. I cannot fathom how much we would have heard about it by now if the Lascaux cave painting. <laughs> <laughs> had in fact been camera obscura based. Yeah, uh, it, it's so weird for the French too to be proud of something they made. That's, that's unheard.
heard of. But <laughs> so, I mean, look, I get it conceptually, but maybe it's possible just that artistic interpretations of an antelope were slightly skewed and they didn't need to be tracing a moving antelope to, to get the imagery right. But we get to the first actual written documentation of the effect and still incredibly early. It's, it's the perforated gnomons on sundials, which is, you know, that, that slight hole in the base of the dial projecting a pinhole image of the sun were described in the Chinese Zhubi Zhuangjing text, which is, you know, the early mathematical text between 1046 and 256 BCE. But the earliest correct description of how a camera obscura actually functioned goes back to 4th century BCE and the Chinese Moist Canon. And this is an incredibly early understanding of the effect. No other known example dates before the 11th century. Even Aristotle in Problems, he asks why light shown through a rectangular opening could appear round, but never considered that it was actually the image of the sun being captured rather than just the lighting shining through it, which by the way, incredible that he's got a whole book where it's like, what does this mean, guys? With absolutely no idea of how it works. <laughs> That's like the opposite of an instruction manual. Yeah. Here's your VCR. Yeah. Fuck it. I don't, I don't know. It scares me. This is wild. Like he literally called it problems. Like there's not even like a follow-up solutions it's just like oh my god fuck if i know guys this is the spiritual predecessor to jay-z's 99 problems clearly (laughs) that's exactly how it started so so a a bitch ain't one but like one through 99 are all just like cameras i just don't fucking get it All right, we've got some loose interpretations here, but I think all of these are at least equally as reasonable as the caveman invented cameras theory. <laughs> so Euclid worked on it too in his work in optics. Anthemus of Trowels, he's the co-architect of the uh, Hagia Sophia, experimented with camera obscure effects and, and did have an understanding of the optics as demonstrated by a light ray diagram he constructed in 555 CE, even if not an understanding of exactly how it's happening. He got how to make it happen. Then you've got the Arab physicist Ibn al-Haytham, extensively studied it in the 11th century, providing the first experiment and mathematical analysis of the phenomenon. And uh, then Franciscan friar Roger Bacon in 1267 got it completely wrong. But this is like the start of what gets to the Western world. And he's stating that light travels in spherical waves. So like basically like guys, once it gets to the hole, it wants to be a circle again. Did you include this fact just to dunk on Franciscan friar Roger Bacon? Look, it was so dumb. It was... I honestly okay with the thought process, but then for like hundreds of years, this ends up in documentation because it's one of the earliest examples. And there's no point where they're writing like, by the way, this was like none of this. None of this meant anything. I really appreciate him just being like, I don't know, fuck it. Light is circles. Yeah. Light is circles. And that's how this works. Take that Aristotle and Aristotle's just like, fuck, I didn't think that maybe I didn't think <laughs> at least at least he's taking a guess. Yeah. He's got another problem now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this is one of the earlier times of it actually reaching Europe. And then you have Arnaldo de Villanova is credited with using a camera obscura to project live performances for entertainment. And Da Vinci actually has the oldest clear description of the camera obscura in the Codex Atlanticus collection. And he just got way into it as Da Vinci does because he drew around 270 diagrams of the camera obscura in his notebooks, experimenting with different shapes and sizes of apertures, as well as with multiple apertures up to 32. And as if you feel like making these at home, you can find instructions online very easily. They're very simple to 
build. And it really is the, his his obsession with the aperture was absolutely right. <laughs> this was what made the effect. And he also compared how the human eye works with the camera obscura, of which he was, again, essentially right. I do want to take a second to just like marvel at the fact that like Aristotle, Da Vinci, they're all sitting around just being like, this is mind blowing and I can't truly wrap my head around it. And meanwhile, today we're just like, yeah, kindergartners make these for funsies. Yeah. <laughs> They want to look at the sun. So this is a safe way for them to do that. And they're all able to make them during their lunch break. And it's just like Aristotle wrote a book about how this is so mind boggling to him that he had to write a fucking book. And now it's like Trevor is like drinking some Choco milk and just like having a blast making one out of construction paper. I've seen plenty of artists who are making like camera obscura photographs in their like shitty Brooklyn apartment. Yeah. With just like dirty sheets on the wall that they poked right. a hole in. <laughs> like, none of this is needed, guys. We have actual cameras <laughs> and also imagination. You could probably just draw the thing because your camera obscure is not enhancing your view that much. Anybody can make a camera obscure these days. <laughs> I, I would love it if this is like the, the quintessential complaint of old people in the future. Like, <laughs> in my day, you had to work hard to build a camera obscura. <laughs> now everybody's got one. Yeah, they're going to put one on the next iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> But to Wen's point about this being used for the eclipse, yeah, because after this and, and before this as well, this, this had a significant role in attempts to study space because they found out pretty early on you can't stare at the sun. Uh, yeah, it was pretty revolutionary in getting people to stop blinding themselves by staring at the sun. Did we actually talk about this in the podcast? There's a lot of debate as to why pirates wear eye patches. And there's some out there theories like they had to run above and below deck, so they wanted one eye adjusted to the dark, and that made it popular because it was cool in theory, but everyone's like, this is the fucking dumbest thing. There's no way they would do that. And then there's one theory that's largely ignored, which is that to find their bearings, they had to stare at the sun through a telescope. Of course, they, they wore eye patches. Eventually, that eye just stopped working. So this was a thing. This was significant in their ability to actually study the sun because before this, they were just dudes staring at it and not really knowing what to do about it. That's actually beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so Kepler starts working on this. 1567, you have Danielle Barbaro writes on using it as a drawing aid. 1572, Friedrich Riesner proposed a portable version, which was very big. And the effect was even used to study the movements of the sun to help determine the new Gregorian calendar, which is, you know, obviously late 16th century. So 1604, we have the first use of the actual term camera obscura by Kepler. Kepler furthered the understanding of how the eye works with the brain correcting the reversing of the image and noticed a sunspot due to his studies with this device. But also nobody knew what a sunspot was, so he just was like, oh, it's probably Mercury. Uh, and then afterwards, they found out that wasn't true and people got really into this again. Camera Obscura telescopes were developed soon after this just to study the sun. There were also accounts of how charlatans would claim they knew necromancy and could raise specters of the devil and then would have an assistant in a mask stand outside to have their image projected in to scare and then con people out of their money who thought they made the devil appear. That is rad as hell. Yeah. That is so cool. <laughs> I love that. The funniest part is that is how the Haunted Mansion works in Disney World now. <laughs> the Haunted Mansion is my favorite. But like, that's literally what they're fucking doing. They're like, they're just like doing a camera obscura to make it look like there are ghosts flying around. That's incredible. All right. Well, we, we brought it back to Disney. <laughs> Apparently ripping off now, you know, 17th century charlatans. This is unquestionably a despicable thing to do, but also like you got a lot of people to come into a tent because you told them you were going to make the devil appear. And then they paid you because they didn't want the devil there. Okay, I'm going to argue with the unquestionably part. I'm going to say 
again that this is pretty sick. (laughs) (laughs) They were exclusively con artists, but it makes for a good story. (laughs) And I do give a little bit of credence to the idea that like people were very willingly taking part in this. And it's like, why did you go in the place where they said the devil was going to appear and then get mad that the devil appeared? What did you think was going to happen? What what was your end game? (laughs) Hey, quick thing. That's victim blaming, Andrew. You're victim blaming right now. All right, guys, if you were just joining us, we're halfway through the episode because I could not get the pay version of Zoom for this one. So we got cut off after 45 minutes. We're going to jump right back in with Descartes. Also, we have an editor. We could have just cut this out, but I'm rolling with it. Descartes suggested placing the eye of a recently dead man as the opening of a camera obscura to relay the last image. Again, so fucking sick. Yeah, you're, you're, you keep saying <laughs> awesome shit to me, Andrew, that I love dearly. So the, the idea behind this was that it would relay the last image they saw formed on their retina. This is the optogram. You've probably seen this referenced in movies because this would become an area of fascination in the 19th and early 20th century. Specifically Wild Wild West starring Will Smith. That's the one, yeah. (laughs) And look, this could actually technically work under a very specific set of circumstances with bright lights and exposure and the eye remaining fixed (laughs) for about 10 minutes after death, again, with very specific lighting then, and then treated with chemicals to retain the image. And they actually did achieve this with rabbits, which was a little disturbing, but even then they could only see like bars of a window. And it actually did mildly work. And it's also to be done very quickly. But even then, the image would be far from impressive, but it was believed to work. And because of that, it was actually attempted to be used multiple times as evidence of who the killer was of a murder victim, claiming that the their image was going to be burned into the retina as the last thing the victim saw. Would be so cool if it worked. So fucking cool. <laughs> so fucking cool. Like, like, I get it. Like, how much of science is just people sitting around being like, you know what would be rad if it was real? And then seeing if they can make it happen. And I'm sad this one doesn't work. It worked a little bit. It worked. Look, <laughs> if you can find an image because of, of the test uh, of Optigram. You go back and see the first one, it looks very much like a staircase you would make on an Etch-A-Sketch. And this was the evidence people tried to use to get people convicted of murder. (laughs) Andrew doesn't like this because if it was used as evidence, he'd be put away for like three murders. (laughs) (laughs) I was just sitting here thinking, I've never had the impulse to become a serial killer, but damned if I didn't find a cool reason just now. Right. Look, knowing you'll be <laughs> immemorialized in the retina of the person you killed. This is for my arts practice. Yeah. <laughs> That's all this is. So this was a bold stance that was taken and blew up basically after photography got big because people started saying like photography is basically functioning the way the human eye is. So newspapers were like, well, if the human eye probably captured some people too. So let's just say that that's what happened. And there were multiple cases of them like insisting that coroners to take pictures of the eye of a dead person to then blow it up and find their killer. And this continually didn't work, but they really pushed it so fucking hard. So many innocent gray blobs have been sent yeah. to prison. <laughs> so backing up for, for just a second, it shows using this effect, the, the uh, obscure effect, not the optical effect. There, there was an account of one from 1656 in France as a form of entertainment. This was relatively rare, but right after this, the magic lantern was developed and became more common. There's still a special event to witness around this time. And due to details in the work of the Dutch masters like Vermeer, it's speculated that they may 
made use of the camera obscura into their actual work. And after this, they continued to be built smaller and more portable. Beginning in the 18th century, they began to be built in the shape of books, and these formed the basis of research done by uh, Niepce, Daguerre, and Talbot in creating the first actual photographs. We're going to get into some of the photography origins here, and I don't want to spend too long on it because I want to hear more of Cassidy's takes on why plagiarism is good. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> the development of the photograph came from this. The development of the camera came with the introduction of the knowledge of, of again, this technology, essentially, that it could be captured through these pinholes and then eventually lenses, and of the knowledge that various substances are altered by exposure to light. Something we must have been aware of for a while, if only from the concept of tanning, but application to fixing it to an image didn't appear until relatively recently before the invent of the camera. Uh, in 1614, it was noted that sunlight will turn powdered silver nitrate black, and then paper wrapped around silver nitrate for a year will turn black as well. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. In 1760, there was a fiction novel by Delaroche that describes something similar to photography, and it did mention exposure to a specific material and an hour drying in a dark place, suggesting he was possibly considering the light sensitivity of the material, but he attributed it to the viscous nature of the theoretical canvas, not the chemical reaction of the materials, which weren't specified anyway. This, this wasn't a concept of like, oh, this is the early photograph. It was just, this is how recent it was in the human mind to be considering, hey, we could potentially capture a permanent image in some form somehow, even with no knowledge of how it could potentially be done. In 1770, you have Scheele. He was studying silver chloride and determined that light darkened it by disintegrating into microscopic dark particles of metallic silver. And he then discovered that ammonia dissolved the silver chloride, but not the dark particles. This would have moved the discovery of photographs so far up, and it was just one of those things that everybody missed. Scheele even noted that red light didn't have much effect on silver chloride, something that would later be applied to dark rooms to develop prints without harming the process. But somehow everyone just kind of missed that he made this discovery. So Thomas Wedgwood is thought to be the first to capture permanent image on materials coated with light sensitive chemicals. Then Wedgwood died young at 34 in 1805 without ever having a particularly successful print. And Davy wrote accounts of Wedgwood's experiments, seems not to have continued them afterwards, basically due to Davy's statement in an article that a substance would be needed to deactivate the unexposed particles in the silver nitrate or silver chloride to be effective. And again, the ammonia shield had already figured out like 40 years earlier was that. And Davy was a highly regarded scientist. So when he said he couldn't find one, everyone just went, oh, probably isn't one then, and just kind of fucked off for a while. I do like the fact of him just like picking up, uh, picking up where Wedgwood left off, and then just being like, this research is very fascinating, and I refuse to look into yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> that that was essentially it. It's, so Neepsy and Daguerre either didn't see or didn't take much note of the story. Talbot only noted the story after he'd already developed his own process. So in 1816, Neepsy did manage in successfully creating images using paper coated in silver chloride but as photo negatives, and they were not permanent, would fade eventually in light. So Niepce did create the oldest surviving photograph formed in a camera in 1826 or 27, and it was made on polished sheet of pewter with a thin coating of bitumen, a naturally occurring petroleum tar as a light-sensitive substance. There was also this period here where they're like, okay, guys, can we just throw whatever crap in nature we can find here because none of the chemical stuff we're working with is doing anything. So the bitumen was dissolved in lavender oil, applied to the pewter and allowed to dry, and then it required an exposure 
picture in the camera of, it, it was said eight hours, but recently I think it was probably days, and the bitumen hardened in proportion to its exposure to light, so the unhardened part could be removed with a solvent, leaving a positive image with light areas represented in hardened bitumen and dark areas by bare pewter. That, look, then you got Neepsy and Daguerre, and they're working together, and there, there's a whole lot here. Neepsy eventually dies, it creates the daguerreotype, and here, what Cassidy had mentioned, when he finally comes up with this process that works, he keeps it very secret. Can I just interject one quick thing? So Neepsy dies and Daguerre carries on the research by himself and then he proceeds to name it after himself and not his partner <laughs> in this process who fucking died. Okay, when have you not been paying attention? Everything in photography up to this point has been so fucking sick and cool. <laughs> if you had the opportunity to put your name on something that badass, you would. He's dead. He doesn't care. <laughs> look, look, look. If, if I, there was someone cranking an old-timey projector and just showing me a moving picture out of a dead man's eye, yeah, make that the fucking win dead eye camera. I would love that. That shit sounds metal as hell. But I'm just saying, if you're co-working on something with someone and the other one dies, it just seems like, like you know, the polite thing to do to let him have the name. That's all I'm saying. It would, except we, we have to recall here that we're dealing with the French inventions, <laughs> which is so much status. I mean, I agree. But what Daguerre does here on, on January 7th, 1839, the first complete practical photographic process was announced at a meeting of the French Academy of Sciences. And details of the process were withheld and specimens were only shown at Daguerre's studio under his supervision to Academy members and distinguished guests. And over like six months, arrangements were made for the French government to buy rights in exchange for pensions for Nipsey's son. So Daguerre at least got that done. And Daguerre and presented the invention to the world as a free gift, except for in Great Britain, where Daguerre sent an agent there to have it patented. So anybody in England who wanted to use a photo had to pay Daguerre while he's heralded as presenting this gift to the world by everyone else, which was honestly just so cool. It's such a petty move. Yeah. It really is. But it's, you know, England and France, not like they're on great terms. The things I said about Daguerre before, take them back. Daguerre rules. I don't think <laughs> yeah. he whatever he wants. I love Daguerre. That is a sloppy bitch who loves drama. If I Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and during this process, by the way, Talbot comes up with the uh, calotype, which is a, a more efficient process because the negative could be used to make a large number of positive prints simply by contact printing. And it lacked fine clarity, which people loved because this is the first time they had to look at how attractive they actually were, like, and, and just hold it there. So the fact that it softened their appearance by not having those fine details was seen as a big plus. But Talbot patented his process, which greatly limited its adoption. And then he just spent all his time pressing lawsuits against anyone who attempted anything. And they're like, dude, other people are working on this too. There are other things here. So uh, Talbot eventually lost, but his, his silver halide negative is the basic technology still used by film cameras today. But it was because of Daguerre's move of just giving it to the world, except for England, who got that giant fuck you, that it became the standard for photography. So that is roughly the history of photography. We're going to stop there because obviously it goes on and we've got digital photography and a lot of developments. Personally, I just find less interesting. And also I want to hear about the plagiarism that happened from this and Cassidy's defense of all of it. Cassidy, what have you got for us? Okay. So we talked about photography and we've talked about it from a historical perspective, but this is where I want to get a little bit heady. I kind of want to approach it from a theory perspective. Is that okay? Please. All right. So I sent you an essay that is very important to contemporary art and especially to photography. And it is the work of art in the age of technological reproduction. And that is an essay by German 
philosopher Walter Benjamin, and he wrote that around the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, I believe. I think it was 1935? Yeah, 1935. So I guess first half of the 20th century. Basically, he posits in this essay that there is no more remaining like proof of authenticity once we create something that recreates the world around us, which is what photography begins to do, right? Because we can take photographs of things, which is completely different from having ever like made drawings or portraits or paintings or what have you. And I feel like this is where like it kind of becomes a semantic argument, but people view the capturing of an image as being more authentic to reality than a drawing of the same thing. So think about how people value photorealistic paintings and drawings over abstract ones. Right. So every time you send your friend that blurry picture of the moon because it looks so pretty and you were convinced that your phone camera could get it, you are plagiarizing the moon. Effectively, <laughs> yes. This article was so fucking fun to read. It's like, <laughs> I know what Cassidy has to be doing with this and this is an insane thing, but also does logically make sense. <laughs> yes. So it is. It is a theory. Uh, it's a working theory that I hate and I love. And <laughs> basically uh, in this in this essay, he talks about how because of the advent of photography, we can no longer claim for anything to be kind of like the authentic or original version of itself that is gone because we can now infinitely reproduce things. So how are we able to find the original thing? And a lot of people respond to that with, oh, well, the, the photo negative is the original thing, but not all photographs have negatives. And the original photograph really is the reality of what is being captured, right? Like it's where the light is interacting with things in this earth. And so like for the authentic image, you have to be in the place at the time that this is happening. So there is no authentic image really. So as a concept of you have to have been there for the experience and once that moment has passed, that moment no longer exists. So because of that, you didn't exist for the moment. All you're seeing is reproduction. But why doesn't this then apply to pigments used for paintings that you didn't make those, or at least you didn't make the materials that the pigments were made from? So where is the, the line then of what is individual creation and what is a reproduction of a natural existence? So I think that uh, something really important to note here is that photography didn't just affect photography. Photography affected all art. Most paintings that you have seen, you have seen digitally reproduced. You have seen like in photographs that other people have taken and put on the internet or on television or something like that. That is one of the like myriad ways that these kind of like extrapolation of a singular image destroys its original being. It like becomes this different thing, right? Because as soon as the Mona Lisa gets photographed by Marcel Duchamp and his name is attached to it, it's a different work of art. And as soon as somebody photographs that Marcel Duchamp piece of the Mona Lisa, that's now a photograph of the photograph of the Mona Lisa. And, you know, it just breaks down with every new step as it gets farther away from the original thing being photographed. So all art in existence becomes a game of telephone, essentially. 
Yes, basically. That is why it becomes so tricky. That's why I say this is where like plagiarism went wrong because of photography and this effect of creating an infinite, abundant source of all images that have ever existed, or at least the possibility of doing such a thing. Because of that, we have a really hard time saying that anything exists on its own without influence from other pre-existing things. We have a really hard time pointing to anything being a completely original thought or idea because we are so now easily able to trace the lineage of all of our ideas and thoughts because we've documented them more than ever before over the last 200 years. So, but what I feel like the difference is here is it's not that things before were original thoughts, but you could present them as original thoughts. Now you just have the ability to point to it and say, you got that from that thing. <laughs> I mean, before you were, we were all still influenced by whatever our exposure in reality was. It's just the difference is now you can potentially point to something similar and say he probably saw this too. Yes. And I think that that is a big effect of what <laughs> we're talking about right now. Um, I think that that is both an effect of what we're talking about with photography, but also an effect of kind of like the globalization of communication networks and the advent of the internet with effect of us all being able to talk to people all the time and share whatever knowledge that we possess with anyone we so please. Like it allows us to find and like trace, like I said, the lineage of our influence and where we got ideas from way easier than ever before. What's so endlessly frustrating about this is with pride, I talk about the people that influenced my work, <laughs> you know, like I, that they had such an impact on me. This is not something I'm trying to hide. This is like, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Stephen Wright was my hero in comedy growing up and he greatly influenced my own style of writing. And it, it has never felt like anything that I've taken from his work. It, it's just, I understood a voice that he was going for and it resonated with me enough that it showed me how to better my own work. And the idea that the line of plagiarism is so malleable is an incredibly frustrating thought <laughs> because it is so easy to point to somebody that you know has stolen your work and be like, this was an absolute dick move. And it's so easy to point it at people that I've admired and be like, thank you for what you've given me. And, and knowing from those that I have had the chance to think personally that like, yeah, we're happy we could influence the next generation. That's fantastic. But the idea that it's subjective gives plagiarists far too much ability <laughs> to, to fight with that line. And that is an infuriating thought. <laughs> but it is fascinating because I'm a horror fan. And uh, in college, I, I wrote a big thing about slasher movies and like and what they where they come from and their evolution. And one of the things there's a really great book called Going to Pieces that goes into all of this. But basically, you could trace it to Psycho and Psycho could be traced to Italian films. But you have these Italian Galeo films that then become the influence for Psycho. Uh, you get the first person perspective, you get the, the stabbing and whatnot, and then that becomes Halloween. And then from Halloween, you have somebody go, well, what if we take the, the setup of Halloween of teens dying, but then we add in like dreams and nightmares, and that becomes a nightmare on Elm Street. Or, oh, what if we take this, but we put it in a remote summer camp to explain why they're isolated. So that becomes Friday the 13th. Well, then you have all these Cabin in the Woods movies that have the same kind of basic formula as Friday the 13th of just, oh, we now know how to isolate people. So like that becomes a trope in horror movies. 
And it's so odd that like, yeah, you could kind of trace that lineage all the way back to these Italian movies that could also trace their lineage back even further. And yeah, there's no original idea. There's just kind of remixes and combinations and not really its own thing, which is very interesting. And sorry, I'm getting so into this, just just hearing all these things being said. No, yeah, absolutely. I think... Andrew is struggling a little bit as an artist hearing this argument, but <laughs> what I would like to ask Andrew to do is to uh, like, let's all three take a step back and think of ourselves not as people who can be plagiarized or who like have been plagiarized, but who are constant plagiarists themselves. That's my argument is that <laughs> all three of us and everyone we know is constantly plagiarizing things without the intention of stealing, if that makes sense. That was explain with the patience of a kindergarten teacher to a student who was absolutely not getting the lesson. Uh, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I get what you mean. And yeah, from someone who I think that the challenge of this is that, yeah, you're, you're looking in both directions. You are looking inward and, and what's your own creation. And this immediately made me think back to my early works where I remember writing someone and, and saying, I don't know what the rule is here. This inspired me. And I wrote this joke because of your joke. And I don't know if this is OK, because I, I, I didn't know where the line is. And ultimately, it is something you find yourself that you do have to decide. Is this something that inspired you or is this something you copied? And I think the fact that there is a subjectivity to it is challenging. But yeah, as an awareness of what you're actually doing, yes, of course, everything we're creating, I think it's something that so commonly people dismiss it, the idea of there's no new idea. But that's really a profound thought that everything you're working with has been created because what matters from that is not that it's created in that exact form, but that it exists in either a reality or a consciousness. There is nothing that is brand new there. And even when I'm learning a new form and recently started trying to develop my own scripts and talking with people about it and like, yeah, this is the formula you use. This is the, the order has to be put in. This is how a story is told. You're repeating a process that has been discovered well before I ever started writing. And the idea of where my creation is and where someone else's is, it is, again, a hard line to define. They they are inseparable. I don't know. I should have sent this to you as a part of the required reading. Yeah. <laughs> I, gave you. I should have told you about Kirby Ferguson's series of videos, Everything is a Remix. I don't know it. Oh, you should definitely look it up. It's it's phenomenal, but it's about this. If you listen to basically any song or watch any film, exactly what Wen was just talking about, like you can see the bones of everything that influenced it in those things. Like you can find the same bass lines in multiple songs by multiple bands. You can find the same plot in multiple films. You can find the same, you know, construction of all the like graphics for film posters and things like that. Like are very repetitive and things just kind of always are borrowing from each other. And it's that way in the art that we make too, because even if we're not plagiarizing someone or taking punchlines that we have heard from other people and verbatim using them, I feel like a lot of comedy is, especially observational comedy, but a lot of comedy is is talking about things that are universal experiences, not unique experiences. Well, that's the comedy that resonates. Right. That the comedy that clicks is the one that clicks because you think, oh my God, this is what I felt or what I've thought or what I've heard. Yeah, but exactly. But is that not a form of plagiarism for it to be he's saying what we're all thinking right like that's the mark <laughs> of a great comic and yet it's it's pretty much plagiarizing the thoughts that we're all having on a day-to-day -day basis this is very heady and yeah. i'm very <laughs> into this <laughs> 
Well, it's one thing for us to be like commenting on the world around us as artists, as writers, and as comedians, but it's another thing completely for us to be doing it and acknowledge that we're not in a vacuum while we do it. There are people who have come before us and talked about these things. There will be people who come after us and talk about these things. And like, we're sure as shit going to say some of the same stuff because we run the gamut of experience that we run and it's pretty similar for most people. I think there there is so much, I feel like this could easily be a three hour episode. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I want to touch on too was, was a death of the author. Oh yeah. Because then you have the concept of how much of this is the work of the creator and how much is the interpretation of the reader and how much do we even have the ability to claim our own work and how much uh, is, is the interpretation our responsibility or owned by those who read it. And I've had stuff both massively misunderstood and stuff where it was received just because my intent was clear. And occasionally it feels like the job of, of the author is to create something where your intent is perfectly clear and occasionally the job is to create something that is just open enough for everyone to find their own meaning in it in which case what have I even made (laughs) except a a pathway for somebody else to fill in the gaps themselves I can't answer that for you Andrew yeah (laughs) you you pause like we're going to come in and like figure out this whole process this is way beyond our pay grade yeah what the listeners can't see is that Andrew is crying a lot yeah a lot I have the same frustrations that you have. Don't get me wrong. Whenever I make these arguments, I'm very angry at myself. Yeah. And I'm very angry thinking about them. But none of it's wrong. None of it's wrong. None of it's wrong. None of it feels right. Yeah. But none of it's wrong. <laughs> no, but I think that that's absolutely something to take into account, especially with like public facing roles, which is what entertainers are. They're constantly facing the public. And so anything that we produce is at the whim of the people that we produce it for. And there are some things that complicate the idea of plagiarism because you can't share, say that you visit a museum and you take a photograph of a painting. You go see the Starry Night and you take a photograph of it and you show your friends the photograph of the Starry Night. That's reproducing that art, but not claiming it, which I feel like is the same as retweeting. (laughs) But there are people who would like claim to like works of art that are not theirs or tweets that are not theirs and that will like rehash them and share them that way. And I think that it being unavoidable is not a reason to ignore it but I think that it is something that is unavoidable (laughs) and also B I think is a like is an effect of creating the work is that it does become reproduced at this point like we are living in an age of reproduction we are constantly reproducing things people are constantly going to reproduce the things that we make and I think that it becomes this kind of like battle with oneself to determine if it is something that you want to try and fight or if it's something that you want to try and like lean into or what you want to do with it but it's gonna happen Andrew I I love this and I guess that's a great way to kind of end this section on because we do have one more section of this show called in their defense yeah we have to defend (laughs) this thing and I guess we have to defend not doing plagiarism how how, how is this section going to work we're gonna defend the original idea that's impossible because the original (laughs) idea was so derivative all right this is this is going to be fun, creative, and make no sense. In part because I don't object to any of this conceptually. My objection is that there isn't a line, and I liked having fixed points. <laughs> I liked having a place where I could point to it and say, this is where it's right, and this is where it's wrong. And I'm aware as an adult, very rarely in reality do you actually get that. I just find it comforting as a theory. But the idea of this is just so incredibly malleable. So I should give this to Cassidy first. Cassidy, in their defense, whatever the fuck we're talking about, <laughs> what have you got? <laughs> 
in defense of the original idea. That's how I'm going to, that's where I'm going to start because I feel like I am seriously of the two brains right now. And I get exactly where you're coming from, Andrew. I feel like I come up with things and I like to think that I, I thought of them and I try to write jokes and I try to write scripts. I try to write all these different things that I want to make sure are new and are not, you know, everything that's come before it. But at the same time, I'm not inventing anything. I'm not inventing new people. I'm not inventing like new lives and things like that, that exist in the real world. I'm just taking knowledge that I already have. But I think that there is something to be said for the ability to use one's own experience to create something that is original that can then be extrapolated upon. I think that there is still original thought, but it's hard to find. I'm going to throw out my version of this. There's this theory that when you dream, you do not make up anyone new. The people you dream in your dreams are people that you have seen at some point in your life. Your imagination cannot create a new face. It can only mix and match and create a person out of the people that you've seen. To which I say, your brain is incapable of not plagiarizing. You're not <laughs> able to put out anything into the world that you have not consumed in some way. If I'm wrong on this, feel free to feel free to dunk on me. But like, there's <laughs> nothing I can bring in and I can not take those things and then put out something different. I can have a worse version of it. <laughs> I can eat the best hamburger in the world and all it will produce is shit. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just how it is. Like, that's just clearly like my body's not able to turn it into a diamond. It can't turn it into something so different from what it already is. So I guess that's kind of what all thought and art kind of is. It's you absorbing all of these things and everything you do is just a remix or, or a slight change, a slight variation. And your brain can't even do it subconsciously and create something new. That's why no dream person you've ever seen isn't actually a new person. It is an existing human being that your brain just filled a role in. And that's my defense. I do not know if that's true or not. Does our brain, is it locked into that? Is, is So wait, but isn't in that sense, the an amalgam of any image we've created? Sure, we've seen enough people that I feel like that's what's happening no matter what, because technically we've seen any of these features. Also, I feel like I've dreamed some weird shit, like something that, <laughs> that had to be abstract enough that I don't know how any of this works. This is so frustrating. You say abstract, <laughs> but it's a camera obscura, my friend. You're yeah, taking yeah. something real and you're doing an abstraction of it. Boom. Camera obscura. I did it. Podcast one. <laughs> you can win podcasts and I just did it. Yeah, that, that's a new thing we've got now. Here's what I've got. In their defense of intent is all I have because ultimately, look, comedy is plagiarism of childhood trauma. That is, that is all we're, we're working off of to begin with. It is whatever scarred us enough that we thought I have to make this funny because I don't want it to be sad. That is that is all that we have made of our entire careers. That's what we're working off to begin with. And because of that, I think intent is is the, the matter behind it. That if you're creating with the intent of something original, you're trying to share something that is what you believe to be your own belief and your own experience and put it out as your own grade. But ultimately, none of that is at any way. My objection is when someone is like, I'm going to take what someone else made and claim it as my own because I wish I made it is I think where the error lies. If if you know you're stealing someone else's idea and all you're doing is claiming ownership because you wish you had done it, I think it's the issue. But other than that, what the hell are we doing? Guys, we, we write dick jokes for a living. <laughs> We're doing the best we can with the trauma given to us. <laughs> I write pussy jokes. All right, thank you. Boom. She does. <laughs> 
to our audience, this is somehow an entire over a year now of producing this podcast. We have somehow done it entirely by stealing Zoom accounts and uh, being able to use the full extended time. But this is the only one where we've now had to restart this because I didn't have access to one. Twice. Twice. Yeah. Because this is a good goddamn episode. So we've got a lot in here. But now we just got to do a wrap up, which we can surely yeah. do in 40 minutes. Cassidy, what do you have for us? <laughs> Please. I just had one more thing to say in response to both of you. And I think that this is is why it's so important to think about like we've been talking about this in terms of like the products that we make right like the things that we provide in terms of objects or comedy or writing things like that the material goods that we produce but also we have the capacity for a completely unique lived experience and I think that that is something we shouldn't discount here because that is like truly one thing that cannot be plagiarized right is the way that you live your life and so basically i just wanted to say be a good person <laughs> thank you guys god this is I, I this is one of our favorite episodes already uh <laughs> so guys we covered uh, plagiarism as an incredibly complicated concept the history of photography and how it led to possibly nothing being real or our owns or who even knows at this point uh, <laughs> Cassidy Kalanick, thank you so much for, I mispronounced that, didn't I? I was about to say, fix it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Is, is it Hanick or Hanick? Kulhanick. Kulhanick. The Cassidy Kulhanick. Is it this wrong way or this wrong way? Yeah. I, I, it's like I forgot how the letter A works. Cassidy Kulhanick, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, this was good. Normally we do topics where we can be like, oh, this is a fixed thing and there's an answer to it. And here's one where I just have to go to bed incredibly angry tonight because there wasn't a solution. No, thanks for letting me come ramble. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, where can people come see you next? This is going to be out a week from Tuesday. All of my shows will be in the past at okay. that point, but I do host a monthly showcase called The Laugh Yard. You can follow me on all social media at Heavenly Grandpa, and I post about it there. And I'm also, you know, more fun than a barrel of monkeys. Just follow me. <laughs> just, just around. <laughs> Cassidy, thank you so much for being here. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes that helps us keep this show going. We're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.